This is the Faraway Farm Boy podcast, episode number 15. My guest today is a friend of mine from Camrose, Alberta. He and his family farm 2,000 acres and milk 560 cows. He is in a management slash herdsman role on this impressive farm and is very good at analyzing data. On this episode, we discuss some of the things he has done to improve animal welfare, milk production, and profitability on the farm. Please welcome the very bright and articulate Jake Vermeer. Jake, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, tell me a bit about the farm and let's go back to the, the very, very beginning. Sure. So yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. I listened to a few of your podcasts. So I was interested in uh, when you invited me to do it. So I was worried that you hadn't got my last DM. I didn't know what happened, but... Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I don't have alerts on my... Yeah, they are annoying that way. I shut them off because it'll alert you when nothing has happened of great significance. Yeah. So I shut those off for you and then I, yeah. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, yeah, Vermeer's Dairy started in 1993. Um, uh, my parents were exchange students in 1991 and came here and worked for a year. Um, uh, Dad worked on a farm in Red Deer and in uh, Busby. Yeah, Busby. And then, uh, so worked there for, 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 worked for a year in Canada. And really liked it, um, but then when they went home, uh, when they went home, they got married, and then kind of had a sit-down meeting with my so my dad's parents had a farm, they milked about seventy cows in Southern Holland and Brabant, and uh, there was no future there really. Their land was going to be annexed by a nature uh, reservation. It's so, a common story. Eh? Yeah. Annexed by something, an airport, a town. Well, there's a difference though. If you get annexed by a town or an airport, there's money involved. And when you get mm. annexed by a nature reserve, there's no money involved. So that was kind of my parents' problem is that there was, it wasn't, I shouldn't say annexed, but they were more or less restricted in their building permits. Yeah. So they could never expand. And yeah. so for them, the farm wasn't big enough to sustain two families. And I think dad always wanted to be bigger. Yeah. And so they looked, they had been in Canada and then they went to other parts of Holland, like the North was really popular and the polder was very popular to go and g- grow. Okay. But in all those situations, they needed more money. So my grandparents had to come with them, right? So they'd uproot the entire family to move. And uh, they went to five farms with a real estate agent, my mom and dad. And then three of those farms were immigrated to Canada. So. My dad kind of, I think, in the back of his mind, wanted to go to Canada, but it was convincing my mom to come along. Yeah. And when my mom heard that three of the five were moving, she said, screw this. Why, why, don't, why are we doing this, the in-between step? Let's just go straight to Canada. My dad's like, yep, deal. <laughs> like, that's what he wanted. So they, uh, they, went, to Can- they went to Canada. Uh, my dad's like, partnership or equity got bought out by my grandpa's or Opa's farm. Um, so they had a so little bit of money. grandparents stayed? Grandparents stayed um, because Alberta was cheap at the time, right? So that's why they couldn't go to Ontario or anything. Alberta was cheap, like land was yeah. cheap and farms were cheap back then. Um, uh, so they could start. It's kind of like Manitoba now or Saskatchewan yeah. was a few years ago. So Did they know people in Yeah, in so we had family in Stettler. Um, and my dad had an aunt that had moved like 15 years before to Stettler. So, but even this area was too expensive back then. So my parents moved to Redwater, Alberta, like close to Fort Saskatchewan. Okay. And uh, I think they bought two or three quarters and 40 cows, 40 milking cows. 
so that's how they started basically the double double three parlor double four parlor with the big glass glass uh, jugs and uh, yep. that's how they started so dad always believed in expanding he always wanted to get bigger so that he would have time off and his employees would have time off so there'd always be people on the farm and and that way and um uh, always wanted to try and achieve more economies of scale so uh, he, he kept growing and back then he would just buy quota if he needed to buy a tractor he'd buy quota if he had to buy a piece of land he'd buy quota because the quota paid right um uh, well, what do you mean he bought both or yeah he always bought both at the same time so if he had to make a capital investment in the farm he would buy quota right because the extra milk would pay for the new expense and that no longer really happens because the margins on quota are tight like quota barely pays for itself nowadays right like you know the payback on a kilo quota it's no longer what it was 15 years ago because the price is so high so that's kind of what he did so he grew and grew and grew so uh 2007 we were milking 220 cows uh we were approached by an oil refinery there there was three that were going to build in that redwater area um i think they had bought over 100 quarters of land and we were actually right up against the the heartland of where they were going to buy so we weren't inside we were outside looking mm-hmm. in but one of our quarters was inside the heartland so of course they just tried to buy one of the quarters and my parents said like no like we don't want to be living underneath these smokestacks like farming cows underneath big oil refineries right so right. you either buy all of us or you buy nothing so the oil refineries like left us for a year like right. didn't like told us like no you 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 just stay there like we won't buy you but then my parents hired a lawyer like a big environmental lawyer and he was able to finally like convince the oil company through some legal action to to buy us out so then they bought us out huh. and we moved here so now we farm just south of camrose so now uh you moved here 13 years ago yeah. you're saying yeah and then you just built everything from scratch yeah yeah this was a grain farm so we, there was uh, initially we bought 12 quarters of land pretty much in a block so they're all touching each other farms kind of in the middle and then this was a canola field so we just you know built a dairy farm so we built the original farm what's a 12 quarter block for people who don't know what a quarter is uh 160 acres so whatever 12 times 160 is oh, yeah we're farming now about 2,000 acres okay so a little bit more all in a block yeah yeah, we have got a couple quarters now outside, not many though. You try to buy the old farm back, like the old we, <laughs> the uh, acres that weren't affected? We uh, we still rented it, actually. And to okay. this day, we still crop share that land, because they never built it. Um, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, all got, that was like, when we sold out, that was $100 barrel oil, right? So there was like, those oil right. companies were yeah. insanely loaded. So they had these big plans of building oil refiners, and they've only ever built one. I think Suncor built. Um, uh, I think it was Suncor that built. So there's only one oiler fire of the three. Yeah, oh, yeah. Saskatchewan. Yeah, wow. it's a few miles off where our old farm used to be. So they did demolish the old farm, like it's gone, but the land is still there and one of our friends up there rents it. Huh. Yeah, so that's kind of our story. That's kind of how we got here. So now- um, But you built everything in 2013 from scratch. Uh, no, 13 years ago. So that was or, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, 2008, I believe we uh, we built. Yeah, right. And all precast. Yeah, all precast. Ego builders, barns. Yeah. How many cows do you guys milk today? Uh, today we're milking around five sixty, five seventy, three times a day. Okay. Yeah. And what do you guys have for bedding and how we, how's it all set up? Sure. Yeah. So we have a rotary carousel outside forty, um, with a single six herringbone for treated cows and sick cows. Um, we right use, next to it type of thing off yeah, the side yeah. yeah right next to it all that milk from the treater parlor 
where the fresh parlor goes underground to the calf barn, which is the built next building over. Yeah. And uh, gets pasteurized there and then fed to the calves. Um, uh, yeah, and then sand bedding for all the main cows. Um, uh, we've got a thousand free stalls on farm, so they're all sand bedded. So we got a lot of uh, pregnant heifers inside and then all the dairy cows and dry cows are inside on sand. So. Right. And, um, and that's over two barns, I guess the, the, your milking cows are in two. Yeah. Um, well, how long are they? 500 ish feet? Yeah. They're yeah, 550. Yeah. 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 It's an impressive setup. Mm-hmm. And then you guys have your own mill. Yeah. We make our own complete feed on farm. Um, uh, so we buy in all our commodities. We have our own barley, of course, but we buy in all the other commodities, canola meal, amino plus, um, uh, um, cargo micro mineral package. We still buy minerals in basically. And then, uh, uh we feed canola meal, stuff like that. So that, uh, what did we say? Two, 2,000 acres? Yeah. yeah a little that, over 2,000 acres. Is that enough yeah. to feed yeah. your 560 cows? Yeah. So, you guys cash crop any then? Yeah, we cash crop okay. too. Yeah. So in the beginning it was more, of course, we were cash cropping right. quite a bit, but now it's, I think over 50% of the, the acres are going towards the dairy. So around probably 1,500 acres are going into the dairy. So room to expand really, as far as the land base goes. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, room to, room to grow on the dairy side, the land base to grow is limited. Like it's a kind of a. No, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. The dairy can grow, yeah, yeah. if we want to use all the land base. We really love canola. Like, if you look at pricing right now, it's over $13 a bushel for next year already. Yeah. So we love to try and keep canola in the rotation. So basically the crops we grow is, is barley, so either silage or grain, depending on how much we need, we make the decision during the summer. And then uh, we grow canola and, uh, and corn and alfalfa. So those are the main crops that we grow. It used to be wheat and it used to be a little bit of peas, but as the dairy grew and took forages, we stopped growing those and we just grow canola basically for the cash crop. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you new to canola or, um, I'm very new to canola. So do you, do you price in next year ready? Yeah. Like you, you bought half your, um, what do you call that? Your, like you're, you're pricing in for next year. Yeah. What's it called? Locking in or whatever. Lock, yeah. Hedging, yeah. Um, uh, how we do it. Um, and, and dad's in charge of the grain side. He, uh, he'll lock in about 40% of what we think we'll produce. It used right. to be easier when you had more canola. Like now we only have a few quarters. And grain guys will be really familiar with this. Yeah, just, of course. Yeah. yeah. If anyone, any grain guys are listening, then, then this is, sounds redundant, but, uh, we'll lock in an X percentage of what we think we'll produce. Yeah. Cause if you, if you lock in a hundred percent, you don't produce it, then you're out. Your contract's no good. Right. So. Um, we try and lock in about 40% to cover our cost, And then the other 60% are what my dad calls like playing around money. Right. So he yeah. hopes markets will go up or down. Right. So now markets are really high. We're locking in more, but usually when the markets are on 10 bucks, you lock in a certain percentage and then you play, and you hope the market goes up with the rest. Yeah. So what a nice thing. Eh? Like that's why we have supply manager with milk. We, we only <laughs> well, have a two day window. Say, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> Dairy farmers in the U.S. will be familiar with that too. I think. Yeah, locking in premiums and insurances, yeah. and yeah. And as far yeah, I think they do that a bunch. Yeah, it's super cool. important. Yeah. 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 Um, a little bit more about your setup here. So, uh, free stalls with some alley scrapers and some scrapers. Yeah. Um, uh, when we built the original barn, we had scrapers, and my. What kind of scrapers? Uh, yeah, pro line scrapers. Is that same the, the v flat blade, bar? Yeah, V blade scrapers. Like, okay, so it's a rope. There's two scrapers, and then there's a 
chunk of steel in the middle and then yeah. ropes on the ends. <laughs> uh, I don't know how else to explain that, but somehow that makes I sense. I didn't know it was an unusual thing, but yeah, like the, the, the part of the scraper that doesn't roll up is a flat bar at our farm. Um, and, we, and to be clear, we only have a scraper by the dry cows currently. Um, now, yeah. Now, so when we first moved here with scrapers, and scrapers are, and I hope I don't step on anyone's toes here, but scrapers are kind of a convenience for people and not a convenience for cows. Like with a thing you have to keep in mind with the sand barn is the material that slips out of the stalls is sand and it doesn't absorb moisture, right? It's great traction, yeah. but it doesn't okay. absorb. So now you're talking about a 550 foot barn that we scrape towards the middle. So there's 250 foot lanes of yeah. manure basically. So by the time you reach the last third of the alley, you have quite a significant pool of manure that's usually would be soaked up by sawdust or straw, right? So your right. your material that you're moving with the scraper is not gonna stick to the feet as much, right? Or it's not as big because it's, it's a smaller amount. So what our farm was happening is you get these huge waves of manure coming through the alleys and cows just walk right through, they don't care. Yeah. And what my problem always was is I'd have wet, damp, dirty feet. Yeah. My cows are perfectly clean because the sand is beautiful for keeping yeah. cows clean. But the bottom half of the hawk was dirty, right? So, so everyone would say, well, scrape more often. Yeah, well, we were running 24-7. So we were running a, a pass every hour, but it's the last one-third where right. you only need about half a foot or a foot of, of manure pool. And, and then when you run 24-7, a cow has a probability of like seven times to pass through a manure pool during the day. She'll lay down and she'll be gone for milking, but the other times when she's up eating and walking around or in heat, she's walking through... And the, and the floors were perfectly clean. It's yeah. just the manure pool. So it, scrapers never work. Of course, the maintenance side, su maintenance side sucks on scrapers. Like we, uh, we were always breaking down with sand. So we, we had to like, we're big believers in, in keep it simple, stupid. So yeah. that's what we decided with the new barn. Um, I'm a huge believer. Like I look, I look at the States for everything. I, I don't benchmark myself to, to the Alberta farmers or the Canadian. How um, dare you? Yeah, it's our average of 80 cows. <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think that that part's important. I think that it's it's the margins are protected in Canada or, or are inflated sometimes. It's easier to achieve some margins out here. And so that also allows for mistakes to be happening. And when you look at some of these big farms in the States, is that there's no room to, to be wrong. There's no room to do something that's not working. And so when you see a large percentage of farms, whether they're big or small, doesn't matter, doing something and having success with it, I look at that and I say, will that work for me? And is that something that we need to look at? So in the States, you'll very rarely see scrapers, freestall scrapers. Majority is flush because of their climates. California is almost 100% flush alleys. Uh, but when you get to Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota, which are a little bit more our type of environment, you'll see a little bit less flush and you'll see more skid steer scraping. So yeah. we looked at the cost of when we built a new barn, it's okay, we got to put eight scrapers in and got to put two uh, motors in. Um, it's a big expense, so we'll save money by not putting them in yeah. um, uh, and we'll try it with the skid steer. And we love it. Like our guys are really good with the skid steers. Alleys are really, really clean them three times a day during milking Great. Cows, cows are out yeah cows are gone cows go to the parlor their feet get washed on the rotary we have a little high uh, pressure nozzle just as the cows back off huh. um so it's a really tiny amount of water but it's high pressure and it just sprays the foot off just with water yeah just with water I, I looked at a study that the alberta hoof trimming association had done or whatever that group is called um and they had a farm in central Alberta that was trying some products so it was a product trial 
and they use water as a control. So every yeah. cow, they still run stuff. And they actually noted in the trial that water cleaned up a large percentage it of... It was close. Like, yeah. the added product wasn't much better than and just water. clean. Yeah. And you know why? It's, I always equate it like to people that don't understand it. Like, when you have a wound on your hand, let's, let's say it's a, it's a cut, it's a deep cut. You put a bandage on for three weeks, that wound won't heal. It, it just kind of uh, oozes and it gets, stays wet. It never crusts properly, right? You need to get air to that wound. So ripping the band-aid off on our cow's feet to say, like keeping them clean and dry, solved all of our DD problems. Cause you had to let air go to the DD and dry it out. And so that's like why we use copper, right? Copper is used as a treatment um, or preventative by drying out the feet, right? Or drying out the, the bacteria that is Montalero or, or hairy heel wart, right? So now when we spray our feet off in the parlor as the cows back off, in the mornings they go through a foot bath, um, so the other two milkings they don't, and they come out in the parlor or in the free stall, and the free stall's clean, and it'll yeah. stay clean up until about two hours before milking, and it still is not enough to coat the entire foot, right? Because there's no manure pool coming through, it's just an equal uh, level of manure throughout. Yeah. So now the cow's feet are way drier, way cleaner. Like when I do copper baths now, my feet actually turn blue and stay blue. And before hmm. they would just be manure after two hours, right? So yeah. we, we do all all our tracking. We do all the recording of DD events. Um, uh, I just use Dairy Comp. So when my hoof trimmer comes through, he does his typical paper sheet with the four quadrants for the feet. And then I enter all this information to Dairy Comp into the hoof trimming uh, or the lameness manager. Okay. So I can look back on how many events we had and when and what time of year and all those things. And we've dropped like 60 to 70% of our DD since last year. Since the scrapers were pulled yeah, out? Yeah, since the scrapers pulled out. It's the only change we made. We what didn't change bath. Your um, sole hemorrhages and, and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. With sand, I'm just kind of wondering the abrasiveness. Yeah, so... This podcast could be like three hours long, but yeah, that's a whole nother subject. <laughs> um, that's fine, deep, but, like, but a couple of years ago, I had a lot of thin soles and nothing had really changed in the barn. And, and we were looking at sand as being one of the reasons, or the type of sand we had as being one of the reasons why we were having those problems. Yeah. So, what we did is we uh, flew down to the States with our nutritionist, uh, had a fun weekend in Madison, and went to like four or five different farms. Um, uh, I saw every type of sand from flour, like literally what looked like flour in the stalls, like stuff that was so fine, to University of Wisconsin was using like basically gravel. Like I could hear the scraper that they were running like a mile away. So, and I, and the uh, hoof trimmer named Carl Berge, he's like the guru on sand bedding, him and Dr. Nigel Cook. And I met with Carl Berge down in Wisconsin because I was having those thin sole problems. And we were talking about our problems and showing him pictures and we were seeing all these farms. He's like, it's not your sand. It's not the sand. It's your DD. Like you have too much DD. Because I was saying like, I was like, I think I have like one third of the barn has DD, like easily. Yeah. And he said like, your cows are walking in pain or walking differently, and that's wearing off the soles of the feet. Huh. Right. So I solved my DD problems, and I solved my thin sole problems almost immediately. Because now the cows walk pain free. They don't. They don't change their gait. They don't walk yeah. differently. Um, and that like immediately helped improve our, our scores on all the abscesses and, and thin soles and stuff. So, yeah, hmm. that answers your question. We had yeah. a lot of problems like when we first moved to the barn, we uh, poured fresh concrete and that's always bad for cows, right? Um, and why? Because uh, the acidity in the concrete evaporates after the new concrete. I don't poured. know about that. Okay. Have, you, have you documented any? We had huge problems, yeah, in the beginning. Yeah, yeah but it, is it 
due to acid? Like, how can it, you, how can you measure acid evaporating? You can't. No, and that's sure. That's fair. Fair point. It's a farmer uh, analogy, or not analogy, but a farmer adage. Like, it's our opinion that that happens. And our I, I'm not disagreeing. Away. I'm saying yeah. <laughs> I I've heard the same thing. I just know nothing about it. Yeah, and I can't. I don't think I can talk much more about it than just to say that fresh concrete is is not great for cows. It takes a couple months for it to harden properly, and to be better for the cows. So when we moved to our first barn, we wanted group. We had never planned on putting sand in. We did put sand in from the beginning, but before we made the decision, finally we had already poured the floors. And dad put a, a, a roller, um, we rolled on traction onto the concrete. So when the concrete- When it was wet? And when it was wet. Oh yeah, yeah. And that killed a lot of cows in the beginning. Like we had some terrible mm. feed problems because that was just wearing down feet like crazy. And so now in the new barn, it costs us a lot more money, um, uh, but we waited for the concrete to harden and then we grooved it like immediately, like cut grooves in instead yep. of uh, like, so that you don't have that extra rib on, exactly. on the yeah. groove or whatever. Because it's so tough to groove wet. Like if, if I can give any advice to any of the farmers listening to this, like don't groove wet because it's so tough to get that edge to stay firm. Like you want a sharp edge and you don't want not sticking up. Not sticking up and no raggedy bits. Um, so if you do, if you, yeah. if you uh, groove your floor with one of those floaters, when it's too dry, you'll get crumbly bits. Yeah. And if you do it too wet, your corner will sag and there's really no point at all grooving them because then you don't, you lose your track, your sharpness to, yeah. to do it. So this is a big thing when you have free stalls. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, so I had, uh, that guy that hoof trimmer in Wisconsin, he owned another company that did the grooving and stuff. So he developed a special grooving machine for uh, for grooving for sand barns, um, and I have to look at for it when it's dry when the concrete yeah for when it's dry. So then I got a company out of Wisconsin to drive up here and groove those floors for us once once it was dry. Not grooving Gord. <laughs> Does he listen to this podcast? <laughs> he will. Everyone listens. So yeah, I think I'll probably just leave it there. It, it's sure. it wasn't even close to pricing. We, we were way cheaper to bring people out of the States. Uh, I got a special permit for them that proved that they were doing a proprietary groove um, that allowed me to get a two-week permit for them. What and is it? Is it just straight grooves and half it's inch a, by half inch type? Yeah, but it's a half inch and a three-quarter inch, I believe. Um, but deep? Uh, yeah, I think deep. I mean, I have to look it up for you. But uh, it, My total uh, concrete slab is only three-quarter inch deep. Wait, what? You want to pause for Save a second? Save so much money. I can Google, look it up for you because it's been a while since I've been like when I was in this I knew them off the top of my head but it's been two years since I had to know these numbers I really I don't need any grooving done but it's a yeah it's a three and a quarter center on center so that's what we're doing three and a quarter center on center 19 millimeter width grooves so those are oh designed. okay three and a quarter and then how deep are the grooves though? Uh, I think I think a three quarter inch yeah if I remember correctly uh, three quarter inch at the sum of the lot. One sec here. Let's go back. These are all pictures of the states. This makes for a great podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, tell me a bit about your your feeding setup and uh, a little bit more of that side of the farm. 1.8 centimeter wide, 1.2 centimeter deep, 8.3 centimeter center on center, or six and a half centimeters flat between grooves. So that's, that's our exact grooving dimensions. Okay. Yeah, so. 
<laughs> I wonder if it makes a huge difference. He, he, like, they, with Dr. Nigel Cook from the University of Wisconsin, they, like, have done research on it. And uh, mm. I can only say that I have way less problems. So whether it's no scrapers, it definitely is no scrapers on the DD side. But the fact that I had no thin soles uh, when we started on the new concrete, like I had way less problems than we started on the new concrete like years ago. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm happy with it just because of the results, whether or not I can point to one thing or another, I don't know. Right. Um, but I'm happy with the results of what we did. So yeah, we, we had like no slipping issues. So. And your barn is sloped how much? Uh, it's, it's is, there, is it not sloped? No, oh, not sloped. Just, yeah, I was just walking with my head tilted or something. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's a different altitude here. <laughs> yeah. Some guys will slope even though they're using scrapers or anything else. Not a flush burn. I don't, maybe a half inch, but I, I have to look at the blueprints to say exactly. Huh. It's not like we did it for a reason. I had like debated with my contractor to slope inwards um, to drain moisture off the floors. Like I'm yeah. huge in getting moisture off the floors. That's why I hung extra fans in the barn. Like our old barn. Moisture off of the floors. Yeah, I want floors dry to dry feet up, right? I want no liquid on the floors basically because mm. I have sand for traction. I don't necessarily need moisture for traction. So I have an issue with not having enough moisture. Because you're moisture you summer ice. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. It does happen when you have, yeah, different the factors. Side, yeah. Um, lots of wind or whatever, right? And do you have problems with DD or? Uh, yeah, currently I do, yeah. Yeah, okay. And what are you doing um, to eliminate that? Where Where's your bottleneck, you think? Um, <laughs> lots of places. <laughs> We're taking the necessary steps to uh, take on these challenges head on. Okay. <laughs> 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 PR statement from yeah. uh, Wendy. Wendy okay. um, let's get back to your issues. Okay. <laughs> sure. Um, talk about your feed system. Yeah, so we, well, first of all, we have a self-propelled silo king unit, the 33 cubic meter, and it's the biggest silo king uh, you can get. Um, uh, feed about 200 dairy cows, uh, a load on that one, so it works good. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, like, we always had a pole type 900T, um, which is a, okay. like a middle size mixer wagon. Yep. So we're doing three, four loads for the dairy cows, and uh, we had a telehandler and telehandler replacing every three years, a tractor at 8,000 plus hours when I was leaking oil. The Supremes only ever really lasted two years, um, two, three huh. years, like the walls were getting thin. Like we actually had water leaking out of our Supreme by the end of it, like underneath where the, the bottom meets the wall. Um, for like mechanic welded a couple of times. But uh, so the whole system was kind of like due for, like we need a new tractor, we need a new mixed running basically. And we looked at it like a new tractor is 300,000. And a mixer wagon is like 160 for a 1200T or so, or 1400T. The problem yeah. with the pull types, they weren't really gonna fit in our calf barn, so we couldn't go too, too much bigger. Right. So we looked at a lot of self-propelled. We had Supreme self-propelled out. It's kind of a cheap built unit. It's a it's a Supreme tub on top of a Ferrison chassis, which comes out of Italy. It's only single axle, so then the it's problem- a, Sorry, it's a Supreme on top of- A Ferrison axle, a chassis. Yeah. Oh. So Supreme, like Supreme's a fantastic. It was one of the like pros like going with Supreme is like so close, but it was still a prototype really. So they wanted to sell it to us and we drove it around and we didn't like it at all. Um, so we didn't go that route. And then we had uh, the Triolette one, the one with that like shape, like cuts down the whole silage wall onto yeah. a big belt, like a big wide belt. Okay. Had a lot of moving parts. It was kind of awkward to use like you had to like raise your cab up while you're at the silage pit to be able to get the knife down. So, and, but you couldn't drive in that position. So oh. every time you had to like 
bring your cab up and down. It literally like runs the on a cab track. moves. Yeah, cab oh. moves. It's kind of cool, but not very practical. Moving parts. And I was worried like on the weekends I feed around four o'clock in the morning or four thirty. I was like, if I'm half asleep and I step out, <laughs> I fall on the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was worried about that. Yeah. So just like the less moving parts, the better. Really, that's yeah. how we always look at things. Like we're not big oh, yeah. equipment guys, and we're like keep it simple. That's right? a scraper thing too, right? Yeah. And you notice that so often on a yeah. dairy farm, like. The less moving parts something has, the better. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And especially with sand. Like, you have to right. keep it so simple. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, we bought the Silo King now. Um, we had it, I think, yeah, we had it over so a year. who sells that? Uh, yeah. Silo King Canada out of Ontario. Okay, and but does Supreme, it's a Supreme box on there? No, that that was a Supreme one. Um, so, Silo oh, King is oh, its Supreme own. Supreme makes their own. Yeah, out of Germany, yeah. It's a 20-year-old company, like 20-year, it's a probably an older company, but they've been doing self-propelled for 20-plus years. Like, it's proven. Huh. We've been really happy with it. We just traded it. We bought a demo unit when we bought it, and we just traded this demo unit, and we just bought a new one. Oh, so yeah? It's a new one coming. It's worn out already, or what? Um, <laughs> no, it's like, it's our most important piece of machinery. Huh. So, this is something that we'll probably flip every couple of years. That's the plan. How many hours do you put on it? You feed eight hours, or five hours a day, or something? Uh, I feed about three hours a day. Okay. Uh, I think we've in the time we've had, I probably put on fifteen hundred hours onto it, okay. a year and a half. So, uh, yeah, it's it's important. Um, we had a couple of small issues in the beginning, probably because it was a demo unit. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, like Dad does all the feeding on farm, uh, every like twelve days out of the out of the two week period, yeah. and then I feed on his off weekend. And uh, yeah, you just sit in one cab, you just roll around. Like we have everything designed really nicely for it. Like there's concrete back and forth to the barns. It's not long Great. distances. The feed milling is a nice position. We did build a new commodity shed, but we probably would have had to do that anyway because of cow size. Like we were right. refilling yeah. our shed every two days with hay bales before. Yeah. So now we can go a month without refilling it. So yeah. Yeah, and then we have our own uh, on-farm feed mill. So process all our own grain. Uh, it's got a one-ton batch mixer inside the building where all the flex augers run into and mix grain. And then uh, they dump out back into the leg into four unload bins. So we have two bins designed for dairy feed, one bin for calf barn. We make our own premix, and then uh, we have a close-up dye premix. So it gets added to the dry cow mix. Yeah. So that's kind of our feeding situation. And what were you feeding your your heifers? Uh, heifers are getting a four, four, four to six months or whatever they were. Uh, like in the big barn. Yeah. The, the, so those will be like uh, twelve to eighteen months. No, sorry, your um, small ones. Yeah, yeah, they're getting pretty similar to a dairy ration. So that's like corn, decent hay, um, and then our premix basically. So which? How old were they? They were uh, weaning till eight months, and then the big ones are like nine months to sixteen or so. Weaning till eight months, and they get the same as your cows. Yeah, well, that's a similar ration. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the the figures off the top of my head. I have to give you our nutritional breakdown, but. Yeah. It's, it's corn silage, it's it's good dairy hay, um, it's a TMR basically, and then we'll top right. dress, so they all get the same base premix inside the diet, um, but the eight month old ones need less energy than the weaning ones, right. so in the mornings our guys will top dress uh, depending on the age basically, huh. so that's how we boost, because we, like, we're not even at the size where we can feed those small numbers independently, we still have to like right. boost them, right, so we are nice that we're oh, able so to... You'll go in with and you'll feed a group and then come back to your bins. No, our guys with... just have a wheelbarrow and they just okay dump, uh, peasants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> modern. Yeah, exactly. So they they still do that. Yeah. So when they first get weaned, their silage 
like optional silage there, but we still feed the complete feed pellet that we buy in from Cargo. Like we still right. buy a, a calf starter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have choice, um, but then pretty quickly already we're swi they're switching over to TMR. So right, and that's our own stuff. And then like a month after that, or a month after same time, wing, let's say. Okay, like they're getting options. they're getting TMR already in the group housing when they're on milk, and they're eating it really because we uh, we track that so every week. We do it on a weekly basis where the guys tally how much they're adding every day to those groups. Yeah. And at the end, we weigh what's left over and subtract that from the amount. And then we get kind of a, how much they're eating. We don't get it per animal, but we get it per group. Yeah. Basically, it gives you a good idea. And the calves, when they're weaned, are eating about 0.5 to 0.6 kilos of TMR a day. And they're eating about 1.5 to 1.6 kilos of starter. So they're right around that 2 kilo uh, mark. Of, of intake when they're leaving the, the uh, group housing rooms. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So all the... So you're big on the management side of things. Tell tell our listeners a bit about what you do here. Like, um, yeah. obviously it's a family farm. Um, it's pretty typical. Of yeah. Food, you know, it's a family farm and that's how it's kind of structured. But um, tell me a bit about your role. and. Yeah, so... Uh, my, it's, it's, it's me and dad on farm, and it's, it's me, mom and dad that own the farm. Um, uh, so I'm a minority shareholder now on the farm, which is exciting. Um, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I like working with them, but... Uh, well, you have to, really. Yeah, so exactly. what's the <laughs> saying that you don't like working with them? <laughs> no, we have a good team. Um, uh, we always have coffee in the morning at 10. That's a real Dutch thing, but that's like, we call that our shareholders meeting. Um, <laughs> so we go through, we go through everything. Um, Mom does all our combining for us. So she's been our combine operator for over 10 years. Okay. And does a great job on that. She always likes complaining when she hops in, but she does a great job every year. So um, it's great. And then she does a lot of running around for us. Okay. Uh, during the rest of the year. And then, uh, so my dad is, uh, like, we run everything really as a team, but our designated roles, like if, if you're going to walk in on a work day, you'll see dad um, feeding in the mornings, and then you'll see him doing, like, town trips and, and fixing stuff, like helping our mechanic get things in order. And then during, like, that's during the winter, I guess, and then during the summer, he's field work. So uh, getting crop seeded, getting things combined and all that stuff. And then I'm I'm basically cows and, and employees. So okay. I do for the most part the hiring and the firing, the logistics, the HR. Um, I do the cow, so I'm I'm like the designated herdsman. Uh, I milk uh, fresh sick and sick cows every single afternoon. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, I'm the go-to for the employees for anything with cows, basically. So okay, that's my role on the farm. So and that's where I that's what I like. I think that's what Dad used to like too. Um, but when I came home, he he gave me that position, and he took on the more the grain side. Um, but we're both cow guys, like total through and through cow guys. Like, don't put huh. me on a tractor for more than a day, and got to be pretty grumpy trying to figure out what's going on in the barn. <laughs> like, I'll just be honest. Sure. So, yeah. I always say like I'd rather put my arm in a cow than in a tractor. So. Yeah, that's kind of how it works. I do all the I do over eighty percent of the breeding, um, because we're all timed AI on the first service. So I do all the Friday morning breedings, which is usually twenty to twenty five cows. Let's talk about that. What's your genetic strategy? What's uh, what do you mean timed AI? So well, that's two different things. Genetic genetic strategy is that's a broader re repro topic. strategy. Yeah, yeah. Repro strategy is uh, yeah. So seventy day volunteer waiting period, uh, pre sync off sync. Seventy day. Seventy day. Yeah. Okay. For everyone. So then uh, the pre-sync uh, starts around 35 days. So estimate shot, uh, 15 days later, second estimate shot. We like those to get the cow cycling and cleaning um, if there's any problems. And we do that systematic. Everyone gets those shots to get them cycling and get them in line. Okay. Then they go into an off-sync. 
So then it's the, the typical offsync program. And then they're bred on whichever, the week that they turn 70 days of milk, it's that Friday. So some of them will be 75 days of milk, some of them will be 72 days of milk, 73 days of milk. Okay. The week that they turn 70, is the day, that Friday is the day they get bred. So it's a group of It's a group of 20, 20 25. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so they all get bred, and then after that, it's standing heat. So we have the, the NEDAP uh, system from GEA, um, the cow watch. So, so why not do that on the first heat? Why not watch for natural heats on the first heat? So we're only about a year into the system. Um, I'm achieving a 25 to 27% prep rate. Okay. So it's pretty good. I don't like messing with things that are good. The really nice thing about the system and how I've set it up and adapted it is that it's systematic. And, and when you're this right. size, things have to be systematic. When it's Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon, our guys know what shots. Like we're giving shots. Cows yeah. are getting locked. They're, we're, we're running through and sinking them basically. So right? if a cow shows uh, heat at 60 days, do you no. breed her? No. It's called cherry picking. You get really low fertility doing that. What? Yeah, oh yeah. I, if if Alta is listening to this, they'll show you presentation <laughs> after presentation of farms that cherry pick, and they get low low fertility. Yeah. So that can't. I I don't understand. Put it that way. That's fine. I will explain I'll that. Get them to contact you. Yeah. Why Why is it not good? Because you. Yeah. I, I, you have to get them to explain it, and I just look at the data, and if the data shows me one thing, and I've seen it on our own farm, like when we cherry pick, it's never good. Like we always, those cows don't get pregnant, and so they're either off cycle or they're off their program. And so it may not be a good heat or your timing may, may be off. And why are you choosing that cow, right? Like why, why do you think that she's in heat? And th those could be problems. Um, uh, we're very strict, like there's no breedings before 70 days. Um, uh, you'll have it on the odd time that we'll have a cow come back into heat 73 days. So her program might not have worked if she missed a shot or the shot didn't work. But then we'll rebreed. Like so, after seventy days, like if she's three days past her last heat, we'll breed her again with the same bull. Try to use the same bull. Yeah, those are gets confusing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in Canada doesn't like that. I went through that, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that's what we do. Um, uh, and then after that, it's all it's all standing heat. So we use the collars. Right. If a cow cows get pricked here at thirty nine days, so if a cow is open and she's got a CL. Then we resync her, so she'll get estrogen. If her CL is big enough to get popped, she'll get estrogen. Yeah. If it's a CL small, then we'll give her fertilizer, and she'll come back onto the herd health next week. It's all automatic. Mm -hmm. So that's our resync program. So we use offsync, standing heat, and resync, basically three different strategies. Now the one thing that we started using with the collars, because our collars are tied in with Dairy Comp, we're one of the first farms in North America to do that. Um, we're recording or time stamping our heats. So when a cow is in heat at 35 days, after two days that will show up on dairy comp so when you go to her cow card it'll actually show the heat and it sounds kind of dumb because you, you could just go to her graph and look but at this size i'm not going to go to every cow graph and look okay i just want a timestamp so i can see on the cow card where the heat is so what happens right. is then now we get a recording now the, now the system or the computer knows that she was in heat so what i do is cows that are cystic or anovular or have problems usually don't come into heat right, right? So if a cow has not shown a heat or had a time-stamped heat before 60 days, she comes onto the herd health. Okay. Because yeah. one of the problems with off-sync is that you're breeding cows that maybe shouldn't be bred, right? But there's a semen deficiency problem with getting pregnant cows. So shouldn't be bred on because of what? They might be cystic or anovular. Okay. But because you're blind breeding, you, that you miss them. So now what I've done is I've adapted our system so that the computer will automatically remove cows that have not had a time-stamped heat and kick them onto the herd health. 
Right. So every okay. Tuesday we do it. They're probably problem. cystic. They have, could have problems. Or the collars don't work. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's yeah. about 50% of the problem. Like, right. it's all wrong or whatever, right? So or then we shipped them like yeah. two months ago. Yeah, well, we tri- <laughs> no, like data entry is pretty important to me. So that usually doesn't happen. But um, it's definitely like, yeah, it's a problem. A cow's got a problem or something. Okay. Yeah. And if not, if the vet says she's cycling, she's fine, we don't do anything. Like, what? maybe she doesn't show good heats, right? Sure. And she'll just yeah. go through the offsing and get bread. We won't touch her. If she's got problems, we treat her. So now... We're treating cystic cows like 50 days sooner than we used to because a cystic cow at 60 days would get bred at 70. That's 10 days. She wouldn't come. She wouldn't show heat and she wouldn't get pregnant. So she wouldn't get seen again until 40 days after, which is 110. So yeah. now you've lost 50 days of time in her lactation. Very important, that pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're really like all about getting cows pregnant as soon as, well, not as soon as possible, but as many cows as possible. Like we're, we're attaining a 75% of the herd pregnant by 150 days of milk. Okay. Yeah. Huh. That yeah, that's really that's really important that preg rate by, um, you know, to to keep your cows yeah. pregnant type thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You you can as soon as you have a few months, and it's not like the preg rate obviously results in low calving months, right? And you can see milk production drop as soon as you get a, a month where there's less calvings that there should have been, because your new stream yeah. of like your 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 days of milk grow, right? And then your yeah. milk milk drops. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It's hand in hand. But I, I just don't understand how breeding a cow that's... Because that's what I'm doing on my farm. I do natural heats first, and if she hasn't shown a heat by... What is it? 80 days, probably? It's kind of loose. Yeah. But then I'll, I'll um, you know, preg check her. Yeah. And then see if there's any issues. Yeah, and, and that's if, fine. And if not, or whatever, I do a program. Like, it's natural heat first, and then a program. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I, normal. I can understand that on a larger farm, you have trouble managing, mm-hmm. you know, who's in heat and who's not, yeah. type, that type of thing. But Yeah, and, and just, uh, I really like the precinct for cleaning cows and getting them to cycle properly. Like, if, if a cow has even got a little bit of metritis, uh, a good heat will help that. So right. when, you, when you encourage that heat through an estimate shot or two estimate shots after a row, it really helps. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but your, your way of breeding cows is like, pretty normal for, for a herd that size. Yeah. If I look at the States and you look at the thousand cow plus farms, it's all double off sync actually. We haven't- To start with? To start with, yeah. It's all time day I for the first breeding. Cause then you, huh. like I have 40% of my cows already pregnant cause our uh, time day I is running at 40% conception. So huh. that's a large percentage of the herd already bred with yeah. just one breeding, right? With a couple of shots. So, and then the rest come off standing heat and resyncs. So how often do you look at uh, conception rate? Do you just go off preg rate? Preg rate, yeah. yeah. Preg rate encompasses everything, yeah. Like I, Something's gotta be terribly wrong if you're looking at conception rate is what you're saying. Uh, Different guy breeding yes, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have to edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, six o'clock, you got six thirty. Um, uh, yeah, it's always six o'clock. Yeah, you're right. And I heard a lot of farms talk about like services per conception, something I never look at because services per conception really means that you, that one time you read her, you got her, right? You could have missed her three times and your service per conception is really good because the one time you got her, she was in a really good heat, right? So if your services per conception is low, maybe you're not catching enough cows. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a different way to look at it. I'll get it backwards. Our service reception is really high. It's like over three. But I get a lot of cows pregnant because semen is cheaper than the pregnancy is. 
Like a pregnancy is worth more than Depends semen. Depends what your semen is, but well, I mean, you're talking the twenty to twenty-five dollar range, or yeah, thirty dollar okay. range. I don't know what you. Yeah, you're sure hundreds of dollars. You're right. Yes, but I mean, I think commercial herd runs between twenty and thirty dollars semen price, probably for a dose, right? Yeah. So if you're doing three times, how how is your conception rate forty percent? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's over forty percent. So but no, wait, because I'm you're saying it would be under, obviously right. it'd be 33.3% if you're servicing three times on average. Yeah. And, and your, your preg rate will always be higher than, than what your conception rate will, or your conception rate factors into your preg rate. And so because of the time AI, like you're blind breeding, like 60% of your cows were, were not pregnant at the time of a time AI, right? So did they need to be bred at that time? Probably not. But you take that chance because you're getting the other 40 are pregnant, right? So you're wasting so much semen really technically there, but the economics show you that, that it's worthwhile, right? Because you're getting so many cows pregnant by having this systematic approach to doing it. So I'm definitely not the expert that you need to talk to about about how this all runs. Like we have, that's like as a dairy farmer, you make sure you have a good team around you mm-hmm. and that's what we do. <laughs> For sure, so, yeah. You so that's what that. Yeah, well, um, our, our, our semen company, our semen team. And, and they I have know, a vested uh, interest, Jake. That's fair. Um, <laughs> uh, and we, we rebuttaled that at first too. So we pay for pregnancy actually. For our for our pricing. I so that. Yeah, exactly. Well, but then they'll <laughs> encourage you to get more cows pregnant. Right? Yeah. The thing like we're, we're 50% select and 50% altogenetics. Um, um, both for over 20 years. We really do not flip flop. Like we're, if anything, my dad is like the... Like, almost bad for not flopping sometimes right hmm. but uh we are like super loyal once we have a, some, someone in place um uh, and uh, we've had select since the very beginning in alta from like two years after that basically and uh, is that something that you do the breeding yeah, yeah. you do all the breeding or do 80 percent of the breeding yeah what bulls are you using and why uh so yeah so how i do my bulls it's a little interesting too i have a so you know you have OPI, you have TPI, you have NetMare, yeah. you have all these trait indexes, right? So yeah. I like indexes because they take an average. Yeah, I, right I've right. gotten that about you. You like the, the data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we're 100% genomic. Um, I think I had a proven bull that was higher than some of my genomic bulls. Helix was a, a proven bull that was higher than lots of the genomic ones out. But I've been 100% genomic for like six, seven years already. And mm-hmm. uh, like the numbers keep going up. Milk keeps going higher. So it's, it's definitely working. Longevity keeps going higher. Um, uh, so, uh, what I do is I have actually my own index called my female index. So on farm here, MFI, we call it. What we do is we sit down with our team and we say, what, what traits do we want? Right. Mm-hmm. So our index right now, I believe is 50% production, 40% fertility and 10% confirmation. Hmm. And I, th- I think that's what it is. It might even be 50, 50. I think we might've t- completely taken out confirmation. Um, uh, but we sit very close to 50, 50 regardless. And, uh, what we do is we rank all the bulls basically. So I get an Excel sheet, every proof round when I'm ready to buy bulls, I get an Excel sheet with 3000 bulls on there ranked by my MFI, not by the TPI or LPI. Hmm. So what happens is then um, uh, we buy bulls based off of that. So my semen companies get this Excel sheet. They highlight the ones that are in my price range and highlight the ones that they're able to move up into Canada. Like one of the problems with select sires is that they will choose the 20 or 30 best bulls that they think will market the best for Canada. Mm-hmm. Right, because the Canadian market is confirmation heavy and and, and good production, mm-hmm. um, so they'll find their best twenty or thirty bulls, and and you'll get the it's not laying here on the table, but you'll get their pamphlet, 
well, it's huge marketing, right? They get the nice pictures on there. Mm-hmm. And I hate being distracted by that. So I look at this Excel sheet and it's just got numbers on it. It's all it's got on it. Lots of US bulls. Yeah, all US bulls. Well, everything is basically US bulls. But or I, I mean, ones that are marketed in the US. Yes, not here. Yeah. Okay. yeah, exactly. So now you have like, all of a sudden you have access to way more bulls. The first time I did this, called my Slack Cyrus rep and he's like, I haven't even heard that bull. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, but it's because it's not marketed up here, but I want it because it fits my genetic plan, right? So that's what we do on the bull side. And on the female side, a lot of people sometimes forget that it, the, the mating, the parental average is 50-50, right? So it's very important which bull you pick, but it's just as important how the females are doing, right? So what we do is we actually apply that MFI also to the females. So we have the same genetic plan for both sides. Do you just create your own acronym, MFI? My Female Index? Yeah, I think that's how, I think that's how Alta advertises it, but that's what we started oh. calling it. My oh, Female I thought you Index. made it yourself on yeah. Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> I don't know, you can't swear on the podcast, can you? Because we just call it My Fucking Index. That's what we called it on the farm. Which uh, stands for breeding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that's that's how we, we did this like years ago already. And... Uh, like we, we like it, like it's very simple. I, it takes me no time to buy bulls. I buy in 50 batch doses usually, or like 50 dose batches. Um, uh, I buy about six bulls, seven bulls. I don't That's like buying- That's enough for how much of- um, uh, Like a third long? of the year. So okay. every proof round. Every proof round there's new genomic bull. So I'm right. buying the latest, newest, hottest bull every time, right? Trying to push numbers and numbers and numbers. You mean the one that fits your index? Yeah, exactly. Not the latest, hottest one that's marketed. Combination, yeah, yeah. combination. Okay. Because the, the latest, hottest ones aren't aren't viable anyway. They're 100, 200 bucks, right? Yeah. So, but when, when the new bull comes out, that and, and my semen guys still apply some of the old way of thinking. Like, they'll make sure the family lines are good. Like, if I send them a bull and they really don't think it's a good fit, they'll tell me. It doesn't happen very often, but they'll tell me, like, don't buy that one. Um, uh, so then on the Alta side, I'm on the Alta Advantage program. So I, uh, I supply them with the dairy comp data um, mm-hmm. and then in return, I get early release semen so I can get some of their better mm-hmm. bulls at a lower price basically. So that's their Advantage program and from Select Sires, they're just very competitive. So you think that program should be um, semen industry wide? Oh yeah, that's a whole nother uh, argument. Like we just quit DHI testing a couple of months ago. How dare you? Yeah, first time in twenty five years. Um, uh, we've always done it. Um, uh, yeah, it, the kind of the breaking point was uh, our sick cows. Like I, uh, like two years ago already, we stopped testing our sick cows uh, in the special parlor. Like a lot of times, those cows are cull cows, and there are always higher cell count cows. I understand that but they screw up all my management reports because they're basically out the door anyway, but I'll keep them for a month longer to milk for calves, right? Mm-hmm. But when I milk them on the test, it screws up all my data because then like then the herd average cares? looks can, really bad. You can disregard. Yeah, so you're worried about what other people think? Or? No, I'm, I'm just, a, a, I don't find, because you have those reports that show you like the top, like right. if, if you the top. Screws up your report. Yeah, it screws up the reports. And what's DHI for? Well, it's for my on-farm management, technically. Right? Yeah. So if I'm not happy with how the reports are relayed or how the snapshot of my herd looks to me on farm, mm-hmm. then why do I do it? So I, I quit two years ago already testing the sick cows. And it's like seven or eight cows. It's not a huge amount, but they're milked at a different time. So the tester's got to come earlier. Um, it's a pain in the butt. So, so were you still verified then? Yeah, I'm still verified. Yeah. But that's where now the change happened. So mm-hmm. now new manager in town and, uh, 
found out that I was not testing sick. And I was like, wasn't like hiding it. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Really, I, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I was doing it for my own benefit, not for the benefit of awards. Like, I get awards anyway. Like, it, it really, it's not in it for this, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I do DHI for management, not for I, I agree, yeah. And I think I, there's a lot of producers that do do it for the awards, right? Yeah, So maybe, yeah. So that's where, so they said like, no, you got to set testing six cows. And I said, that's ridiculous. Like you're going to give up 600 cows for six to eight cows. That's 1% of my herd not being tested. And, and they have a sick rule. Like you can label an animal sick. Well, now I found out their definition of sick is like immobile, like laying down on the straw pack. Milk can't meter. be tested. Yeah, it can't be tested. Well, I said, that's fine. I'm just going to remove the milk meters from my sick cow parlor. Now those cows can no longer be tested as well. <laughs> like you want to like, you, you want to go down that road. So they, they went up to upper management and they said, no, we can't allow that. Um, uh, so I said, just go unverified then. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, but uh, our cell counts have been good for the last few years. Um, just didn't see the value in it anymore. I said, so how do you know if you have a uh, cell count of, uh, outbreak? Yeah. So your bulk tank cell count is the first way that we okay. see it, right? Yeah. We're picked up every day. So I have cell counts almost every afternoon, right? right. Um, uh, my guys strip check every single morning. Um, uh, and we have a cell count tester there, a little handheld one, okay. a MAS detect it's called. Okay. And it just basically does it off of connectivity. Um, uh, it gives you a ballpark range, so my yeah. guys know if, if they're high. So they look for clots and typical mastitis signs. Yeah. Then they'll strip, they'll check through that tester to see if they're actually high or if it was just a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. Um, then we paint letters onto the cow. So if the right front quarter is bad, we'll put uh, an F on the right side. So and then we know front right is bad. So the next milking, they'll check again, see if yeah. it's gone or not. Um, if it's not gone, they get sorted out, go in the sick cow parlor and get treated by me. Like that's when I, that's when I see them for the right. first time. And, uh, from there we go basically. So yeah, I just didn't see the value that DHI was off for the price. Like we're talking like we're spending $25,000 a year on DHI during yeah. COVID was, was a big expense for us. So we just said like, we're, we're done with it. Um, uh, we get enough data on farm between the, the rumination and the eating time and the parlor data that's coming back to us that. We don't think it's valuable like being off of it now i think for five months and i haven't missed it to be honest i probably missed the bcas the most because you would get your bcas back and that was just in my mind one way that i was evaluating cows yeah um and now i just have to train my brain to use 305m basically so our dairy comp still projects or predicts a 305m and that's just what i started using Hmm, that's yeah. interesting. That so I never viewed it as the the total complete management tool, but I always took it into account when I'm when I'm doing some sort of herd management. Right. Because often with my small herd, it it's skewed often in different directions because of one or two cows. One or two cows. It's no different. I still either. think it's important for me because I I uh, don't have a a quite complete management system. And maybe on a smaller farm, it's different. I can definitely see your angle, though. Mm -hmm. In what sense do you don't think you have a complete management system? Um, there's <laughs> lots of different avenues that we're pursuing as far as management. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> At this time. Uh, so do you have employees? Or, like, who's milking cows right now? Uh, they'll be a part-time milker, okay. yeah. yeah so you're Hopefully. If I haven't heard Hopefully. from them, I usually hear if something goes terribly wrong. Like um, but I threw my phone out on the way here, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, funny. That's funny. 
I kind of like that. I've had you here for a while now, so I better let you go. Thanks for coming yeah. on the podcast. And uh, no I, I feel we could just keep on going for the next couple of days talking about management and data. But Yeah, I could talk pretty much <laughs> all day long about, about dairy in general. So We'll have to have you back on eventually. So thanks yeah. for coming on. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Faraway Farm Boy podcast, episode number 15 with Jake Vermeer of Vermeer's Dairy. If you're looking for other dairy farming podcasts, check out the Bowls, Beers, and Barn Talk podcast. Join me again next week.